0: This morning we begin chapter twenty of Judges. We'll be in Judges twenty one through thirteen. That's that's my plan this morning that we cover those verses. And the title of this morning's sermon, in case you're taking notes, is "The Destruction of Benjamin, Part One." The Destruction of Benjamin, Part One, in Judges twenty one through thirteen. So we see in God's word that um, he often brings judgment to those that have sinned against him, those that have incurred rightfully his wrath. We see that prior to destruction, though, there are precursors to this, harbingers, if you will, of this coming judgment. And we see it in Judges. We see disunity amongst those called to be God's people. We see disintegration, societal disintegration, that precede God's judgment, that is part of God's judgment. We notice as we read our Bibles that the great event of the Old Testament, the exodus out of Egypt, is referred to time and time again it's it's used often metaphorically in the Old Testament after that event and it is even used into the new testament it 's that important this first exodus out of egypt of course foretells a greater exodus that was to come at the looking at it from the time of moses 's writing it was in the future and that 's the Lord Jesus Christ's delivery of his people from sin and bondage. In the first Exodus, we see that the Lord God prepared to deliver Israel out of bondage in Egypt when he instructed Moses to deliver this message to the 12 tribes of Israel. We see this in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The Lord God then instructs Moses to deliver a message to the Pharaoh. And and the Lord instructs Moses several times to do this preceding each of the ten plagues that the Lord will visit upon Pharaoh and his house and all of Egypt for disobeying God's instruction. And this, and this message always goes like this. And this example is from Exodus seven sixteen. Yahweh to Moses, And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Now we know from the patriarchal narratives in the book of Genesis that Israel consists of 12 tribes joined in a confederacy that are descendants from Jacob, later renamed Israel. But notice in these accounts from Exodus, this this was my point here, is that Israel is referred to by the Lord God as one people, not 12 separate tribes that are, temporarily together they are his people so there's a cohesiveness implied in this that surpasses all other bonds excuse me that unite people whether they be ethnic or national bonds we see this cohesiveness though of Yahweh's people break down during this period of the judges and we're reaching its climax as we get towards the end of this book as the various judges anointed by Yahweh to muster the forces of Israel against the outside threats that that are brought upon them these judges rarely succeed in mustering all of Israel's forces as we've seen as we've gone through the book there are times when various tribes have excuses for not responding to the summon of the judge especially now that they are mostly all of them, except for Dan, the tribe of Dan. But everyone else is pretty much settled in their land, the land allotted to them uh, by the Lord. And we see the cohesiveness breaking down. They start to view themselves primarily as members of a particular tribe rather than the people of Israel, rather than God's people. Then even later and we get to the, the, the latter judges, Gideon, and after, this tri- even this tribal cohesiveness breaks down. Then clan membership, the subsets in the tribe, become a source of one's identity. And that breaks down even further to where it's family ties that are important. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes part of the theme in Judges that we've read several times, the no king formula, as we've been calling it. Here is the triumph of individualism. But there's irony in individualism that we see here. And also, we must see it in ourselves and in our society. Because we admire the rugged individualists. We do, especially in the United States. We're we're a nation of individualists. At at least that's what we claim or used to claim. And we, we even style ourselves, our own selves maybe, as individualists. That we don't go with the crowd. We march to the beat of a different drummer, so to speak. But it's when, it's when we stand alone, think about this, that we are most susceptible, that we're most vulnerable to pressure and influence from, from others, both singular and combined. Others, like one person, and then you know, uh, peer pressure, society's pressure, or everyone around us pressuring us to do stuff. And how, how does the lone individual handle this sort of conflict, especially large-scale conflict. And we have this, this tendency in our human nature that we want to choose sides. We seem to think we must choose sides. Neutrality is a very difficult thing to maintain. That's, that's really what I'm trying to say here. As try as we might, we're going to be pulled. So pressure and demands to align with one side or another are inevitable. We face this in our lives from family disagreements to international geopolitical events. We're told, pick a side. Get on the right side of history. Consider though, which side does God choose? At the beginning, of the conquest of the promised land during the time of Joshua, just before the time of the judges, we read of this account in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So this this descriptive phrase of this man that Joshua encounters, this phrase with his drawn sword in his hand, it only appears here and two other places in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers and the first book of Chronicles. In those two accounts, the sword bearer is identified as the angel of Yahweh. So here Joshua has encountered the angel of Yahweh. And his response to Joshua's question, when Joshua asked him, are you for us or for your adversaries? Because they're getting ready to attack Jericho, right? That's their mission. They're supposed to take down this city. And here is this resplendent warrior with a drawn sword in his hand. He's obviously a fighting man. So Joshua rightfully asks him, are you on our side? Are you on their side? Because he didn't know. His response, though, the commander's response, is, can be translated um, in the ESV, which I read you, it's no, but the, the United Bible Society's Handbook for Translation says it can rightly be translated as neither. I'm not here for either side. And to this, Joshua falls down and worships this being, this man, which gives us a hint that it's not just a man. The Bible never supports the worship of a human being. And Joshua asks for a word from him with the drawn sword. And the commander's response to Joshua seems incomplete. It's the same command that the angel of Yahweh gives Moses from the burning bush But this response, I think, gives us the answer to Joshua's original question, and to every question asked throughout the ages about which side God is on. Thinking historically, virtually every account of war in the West, in the Western world, prior to World War II, because World War II we had the rise of these great atheist states in Germany and the Soviet Union, which were God deniers, but in every conflict prior to that, each side of the Western powers in conflict would claim that God was on their side. Now, obviously, that doesn't make sense, does it, in a conflict that God is on both sides? We read the accounts in our history, especially the war between the states, the Civil War, here, when each side claimed to be doing the Lord's work, that the Lord was on their side in this great and terrible conflict of a civil war. And we know, if we are thinking logically and reasonably, that that just doesn't seem to add up. We must realize that we can individually and collectively make no claim upon God. We can make no demand of God. It is God who makes the claim upon man his image-bearer, and upon those whom he has elected as his people. As Christ warned his opponents, Matthew tells us this in his gospel, Christ warned his opponents, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It is God whose side we need to be on. We do not ask God to be on our side we may ask for his blessings and for his guidance and his direction in the things we do in our life in the direction we take in the course our nation pursues but god does not follow along after us god is not a follower i think we realize that but it's a point i want to establish as i as i get into this sermon And the horrible depravity we've seen in Judges chapter 19 is the fruit of sin which flourished in Israel because in those days there was no king in Israel. Which the author reminds us of in the introductory sentence of the account of the Levite and his concubine, which we have gone through in the last few weeks. And without a king, there's no law. So every man does what is right in his own eyes. In other words, each Israelite has departed from King Yahweh's covenant. The problem, at least initially, is not so much what each man was doing, but with the standard that governed him, that is, in his own eyes. That was the standard that each was using. And Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on Judges, says this. The ultimate perversity of every man demanding the right to be his own Lord. The problem is not sins, but sin, that Declaration of Independence, whether stated viciously or politely, which says, Yes, I do want to be like God, calling my own shots. Davis obviously referring to the scene in the garden in Genesis 3, that offer in the garden. By the serpent, which was so quickly accepted by our first parents. But here's the rub. This is what we must realize. Having a king in the land does not mean that all will be well. Some commentators will say that the human author of Judges is far too optimistic when it comes to monarchy. Which they used to place at a time before the division of the kingdom of Israel into Israel and Judah because there was such a positive aspect to the view of what a king could do. But I think as we we have discussed and as many of you have pointed out to me in conversations that you have seen in reading the book of Judges that the king that the author is referring to is the Lord God. It is not a man sitting on a throne temporarily. It is the eternal king that we are talking about here. So the author of Judges, then, is not making a case for blind obedience to human government as a cure-all for all the problems of mankind. And this should be obvious to us at this time of government overreach that we're living in were those who would style themselves to be our rulers, our kings, burst asunder not only the framework of our nation's founding fathers, who recognized in both words and actions they displayed, they recognized the guiding hand of divine providence and of God's blessing. But these people would burst asunder the spheres of sovereignty rightly belonging to the family and the church. Which have been separated and protected from government intrusion by our Constitution. So, the question that we each must ask ourselves and answer is who is our king? Is it you? Is it your family? Is it your clan? Is it your tribe? Is it another human being residing? in a government house, or a grand palace. The monumental corruption in our current government makes this question as pertinent to us today as it was to Israel. And this next part of the story we come to demonstrates how the manipulation of just one person, never mind an entire or a major part of a government, but just one person's manipulation Can take an entire people down the path of destruction. That this path that we're going to see here, Israel going down, was paved long before this man's arrival. The people of Israel had already laid out the path of their destruction. They did not take seriously a choice that was posed to them at the time of the conquest under Joshua, their great leader. During the covenant renewal ceremony at Setchem, Joshua issued an instruction to the gathered people of Israel. We read this in chapter 24 of the book of Joshua. Specifically, I'm referring to verses 14 through 15, which I will read. Joshua says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's instruction, his, the choice he presents, his commitment to his own choice, voiced to physical Israel at the time of the conquest, is applicable to spiritual Israel, the church to, today. As is what transpired in Israel after the murder of the Levites concubine. The the events that we are about to take a look at, they're applicable to us. So now we turn to the beginning of of our text in Judges chapter 20. First, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3a, the beginning of verse 3. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. This brings me to my first point that I want to make. Point number one. Our turning to God should not be our last resort. Our turning to God should not be our last resort. Now we might find encouragement in what we read here that Israel's response to the Levites' dismemberment of his concubine, that horrible cutting up of this poor woman and sending her, her, her body in pieces out to all the tribes of Israel, first we see out of their fractured condition They assembled as one man. Okay, well, we're seeing unity coming out of disunity. This point is emphasized by the expression used here in this passage of all the people of Israel. Literally, it says all the sons of Israel. And this this only occurs one other time in Judges, and that's early on in chapter 2, verse 4 of Judges, when the angel of Yahweh that figure that we talked about that Joshua encountered, that when the angel of Yahweh appears to Israel and points out their sins, confronts them with their covenant disobedience, and they respond by lifting up their voices and weeping in response to what he reveals to them, what he tells them, what they have done, and they repent of their sin. But we haven't seen that since then. The phrase that's in this passage, from Dan to Beersheba, is merely a geographical reference. It would be like if we we said from um, um, uh, Seattle to San Diego or Maine to Florida. It's the entirety of the land of Israel from north to south. And obviously... Not the, every person in Israel is there at, at this meeting. We're told the chiefs of all the people are there. Literally, these are the cornerstones of the people. They, they were present representing each of the tribes. But not all the tribes were there. Even though we're told in nineteen chapter 19 that the Levite sent body parts to all of the tribes. Benjamin is not there, Benjamin is missing. The tribe in which this crime originally began to occur is absent. And note that this assembly is a military camp, it's not a political meeting, it's not a religious meeting. This is evident from the fact that we're told that 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword, in other words, infantrymen, were present. Now, there is a bit of a problem with this number, and I don't want to belabor it, but, but if we take this number as literal, then, we're, then we must deal with the fact that then Israel must be incredibly huge population-wise at this time, which is problematic because this is a time of conflict, a time of stress that's been going on for quite a while. And during time periods like that, um, humans just do not reproduce, reproduce much under, in stress and in war and in and, and, and conflict. So the, the word, the Hebrew word that we translate in our English Bibles as thousands is this word elip. And elip, I think, in this sense, in, the, in this context, certainly does mean this. But it can also mean a, a military contingent. A certain group of men, like a, uh, uh, the Scottish clans that, that fought, um, things of that nature. So it may not, it, probably not this huge number. It could be, you know, 400 of these units, whatever size the unit was. And that's just kind of an aside, an apologetic aside, because often you'll find people that are not believers that will argue about these large numbers. So that's just to help you to understand that a little bit. And secondly, the narrator identifies this assembled group at Mizpah as the congregation. Now, we immediately think in religious terms, don't we, if we hear congregation. Um, but really, this is a legal term. Uh, it, it's, it has the same root word in Hebrew as the Hebrew words for witness and to testify. So what it's denoting, what it's telling us uh, about this, is that these people are gathered as a covenant people committed under Yahweh's sovereignty at Mizpah. So there so there is that religious connection there. Um, so we can kind of like fit that together. And the use of this term signifies. The author's intentional identification of Israel now united as a spiritual body under Yahweh. That's an important point for us. And third, lest we miss those points, the author adds that they assembled to the Lord at Mizpah. Now, Mizpah means watchtower. And so this is identified as a sanctuary, a place where the Israelites could gather to meet with the Lord God, with Yahweh God. And fourth, in verse 2, the gathering is called the Assembly of the People of God. And this is the only place in the entire Old Testament that this phrase occurs. But unfortunately, like I said, it's not a worship gathering, it's an assembly of war that's meeting to attack other Israelites their own kinsmen. Even though, as we read the text, we must realize it's probably unclear to the Israelites at this time, the ones that have been gathered, that they, that they even knew the precise reason for their gathering. Right? The report of the, of the Levite's summons, this, this gruesome summons that he sent out, sent out, makes no mention of the cause of his own outrage. It seems that it's just the sight of the fragments of his concubine's body alone was enough to galvanize his countrymen to come together and to meet. Perhaps they were afraid, as I've explained before, that this was a warning of what would be done to them If they failed to respond, and I make that suggestion based on archaeological discoveries of cuneiform tablets where this sort of thing has been used by pagan kings to make sure that the people respond to the call for war. We will take a prisoner, we will cut him up, and we will set his pieces on the crossroads in the kingdom as a warning. If you do not respond to my call to war, this I will do to you. So perhaps that was enough, like, well, I don't want to get cut up, I better go to this meeting. Now, we are never going to do that to get you to come to, you know, service here. So, you don't know, don't worry about getting a body part, you know, and you better be at the 5 p.m. service or Wednesday night Bible study. <laughs> we wouldn't do that. That's, it's horrible. I shouldn't even make such a joke, should I? Anyway, that's my old cop nature, you know, being, yeah. All right, moving on, getting back to the important stuff. Um, back to Judges chapter 20. I'm going to read now verses uh, the last part of verse 3, 3b, to verse 7. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gabeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gabeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So the Levite, of course, is asked to explain how it came to be that this woman's dismembered body showed up in all of the 12 tribal lands. He gives a carefully tailored account how it came to be. And this this account, we can can detect in here, He, he has a clear intention to influence this assembly to a certain conclusion. He's not telling the complete truth. He's twisting things. And I'm going to point this out to you what he's doing, if you haven't picked up on it. In the author's account, the original version that we read in the Bible, we learn it's the men of the city, the worthless fellows, literally the sons of Belial, sons of Satan, who are responsible for this attack. However, what does the Levite say? He changes it, doesn't he? He tells the assembly it was the leaders of Gabeah who did it. And he doesn't mention the intention of, the, of this original mob, right? Which was homosexual rape. It was a resurrection of Sodom that was going on. No, he says that it was their intention to kill him. His words, if you notice stress the threat to himself and thereby reducing his culpability in the crime against his concubine. He makes himself the center of what's going on here. And he fails to provide any explanation as to why these culprits suddenly turned their intent from killing him to raping and abusing, torturing, and leading to the the death, the killing of his concubine. He doesn't explain how that happened. In verse 5 he says, they violated my concubine and she is dead. He doesn't give us any further information than we got in the first account as to how and when this poor young woman died. He implies that she died solely as a result of what the mob did to her. But he leaves out the part, doesn't he, of where he thrusts her out the door to save himself, where he throws his concubine, his young wife, to the wolves. He purposely withholds details that might reflect badly on him. But he knows what to include. He's masterful in this. He should run for office. He climaxes his appeal to the assembly by referring to the land as Israel's inheritance, implying that everything involved in Yahweh's original gift of the land to Israel's 12 tribes is now at stake, that they are about to lose their inheritance, that this action, the actions of this band of criminals can undo God's blessings and God's decrees to all of his people, never mind what he did. And so he's urging them. That action is necessary. Ironically, his accusation against the Benjaminite leaders, not just the sons of Belial, but the leaders in Benjamin, he says that they committed abomination and outrage in Israel. And that's why he committed the outrage and abomination of cutting up his poor concubine's body. It's ironic. doesn't make sense when we think about it. He's pointing those guys, those guys, those guys. Don't look at me. Look at them. The Levite's speech is essentially a summation by a prosecuting attorney. He's not been subject to questioning by the assembly. He's allowed to present the facts as he sees fit. And in verse 7... Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Here he's asking the assembly to deliver a verdict on behalf of the people of Israel. This is like in a felony case here in California. The the people of the state of California are always a co-victim in any felony that's occurred when a prosecutor addresses the case. But there is another victim in, in a horrible crime in a felony, and that's the human victim. But he leaves her out of it. He doesn't ask for justice for this primary victim, his concubine. No. He, he wants to focus everyone's attention on themselves. And again, we see this poor young woman forgotten. Apparently, he considers her undeserving of justice. It should be plain to us now that this Levite is not a truth teller. He's a truth manipulator. And he is manipulating all of Israel to return a verdict based on false and sketchy evidence that he has twisted. Flawed evidence leads to a flawed verdict which results in flawed action as we shall see. Strangely, though, the, the, the Levite now disappears from the story, never to return. We're not going to hear another word about him. He is of the tribe of Levi, the tribe whose legacy is to be spiritual leaders to Israel. But he leads them into violence against fellow Israelites. He acted as a judge summoning, all of the warriors of Israel, by sending out the woman's corpse against a threat from a foe that basically he has manufactured. We have a despicable band of criminals in Gabea that need to be brought to justice. But he has painted all of Gabea, their leadership, and thus all of Benjamin, as responsible for what these very wicked men have done. And he, as a judge, we can see him as a very perverted judge. As a judge, he abandons his leadership, which is to lead the troops he has summoned. That's what the judges in Israel were to do. He abandons the cause just as he abandoned his young wife, his concubine. And if you recall, when, when we began this, this story, this account, I talked about the anonymous nature of the characters in this, that they were purposely anonymous to us because they were representative of their group as a whole. So, this Levite is not holding the guilt by himself. The guilt is shared by the rest of the tribe of Levi, the entire tribe. They have neglected their obligations to Yahweh and Israel. We've seen this from the very beginning in Judges as the people went after the Baals and the Asheroth. The Levites are silent, they do not attempt to turn the Israelites from pagan worship which is their job to shepherd them spiritually. This brings me to my second point, point number two. When the Lord bestows favor, it is for a purpose. When the Lord bestows favor, it is for a purpose. Now we do nothing to earn what the Lord God gives us. But it is not for nothing that it is given the Levites did not earn their status in Israel. It's not that, they, that, that the Lord God looked down and said, well, this, this tribe seems to be especially pious. They are, they, they're well-suited for you know, uh, um, handling the worship and all this other stuff. No, he, he selected them, unmerited. It was given to them. Likewise, our election to salvation is unearned and freely given. Peter, in his first epistle to the church, tells us that he says, you, he's talking to us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, the Lord's, own possession. And now, this isn't Peter talking, this is Pastor Ken, and now the Lord has expectations of you. Why do I say that? Well, For example, in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples, starting at verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But... If that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So to play at the Christian life for your family or for your friends is pointless. Bearing the title of spiritual leader and, and failing due to neglect and intentional sin like the Levite, that has consequences. And I want you to realize that. We see around us some exalted, exemplary Christians that that are leaders, in leadership positions, exposed as charlatans, as hypocrites, as deceivers, sadly even as abusers. The Lord Jesus says it will not go well for them the Lord Jesus makes it clear here that false disciples suffer a worse fate than unbelievers. Why? Because they bring shame upon the name of the Lord, for one, which we, which should, we, we should never do. When we do that, we violate the third commandment. We're bearing, holding up the standard of Christ's name in vain, wrongly. We're, letting, we're dragging it through the mud That's a horrible thing for one who knows better to do. But the Christian life is one of joy for the true believer, but not for the false believer, because the false believer does not have the love of Christ within him or her, so he cannot truly love God or even other people. So this this makes for a legalistic nitpicker or an argumentative heresy hunter, the, the source of so many damaging characters of Christians that we, that we hate to see, that we hate to have our friends and family members who are not believers bring up to us. Well, explain this, if you will. And then we point them to the Lord. We don't look at the follower. You look at the Lord God. You look at Christ, Jesus Christ. Back to Judges, verses 8 through 13 in chapter 20. And all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah: We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people. That when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel." So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. So moved are the men of the congregation by the Levites' testimony that they act as one man. Again, we see this misplaced unity. They're finally coming together, but for the wrong cause. They're coming together declaring that none of the assembled leaders or swordsmen that are gathered in Mizpah will return even to their own tent in camp, much less go back to their homes. They're going to move out right now. Gebia must be attacked, they decide. We see something amiss, though, when it comes to who will lead the attack. Unlike at the beginning of the book of Judges, in chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning, we see Israel go to the Lord for direction. They go to Yahweh and ask, who shall lead us against the Canaanites? And the Lord responds to them, Judah shall lead you. Well, in this case, there's no mention of Yahweh in this, is there? We don't hear the name of the Lord God. They're not seeking him. They're going to do it by lot, by, by throwing, you know, some like dice, something of that nature. And yes, in, in the Old Testament, even in the New, the, the casting of a lot was used to discern God's will. But when we see it used, there is always reference that we're doing this so the Lord will speak to us through this instrument. And at the time and place where it was used in this way, it was proper culturally. It, it was accepted. You know, it's not, not so much today. So don't be rolling the bones in the hallway trying to decide you know, um, uh, spiritual matters. What I'm trying to say here is that they're 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 moving on their own. They're they're not they're they're not going to the Lord first. Lord, what should we do in this matter? They're like striking out, and this is holy war. They're declaring holy war. But who's absent in the holy war? God is absent in the holy war. Israel makes this mistake more than once. They get ahead of God and they expect God to come behind them and clean them up. And brothers and sisters, we do the same thing. We must be aware of this, of of automatically assuming because we bear the Lord's name as Christians, that we are committed to him, that that if we get ahead of him, that he's just going to come along and make right Whatever mess that we make, this is not always so. Sometimes the Lord is gracious and, and, and does this for us and, and straightens us out. And hopefully we learn our lesson. This is why we have these accounts in God's word. So we learn from them and that we pattern our behavior correctly. And although these men, their stated attention is to their what they say they 're going to do is to attack Gabeah, one little city belonging to one small tribe, Benjamin, notice their preparations they 're preparing for a protracted campaign they 're assigning ten percent of their men, whatever number. You think that may be 400,000 or less. 10% of them are assigned quartermaster duties. They're assigned to go out and uh, scavenge food in the countryside of Benjamin for the army. It's like a modern nation saying we've just got to go do this one little military mission and we only need $50 billion to do it. It's like, eh, I think they've got plans beyond this one mission if, if they're asking for that much money. Well, if you're, if you're providing for your, your soldiers in this way, you know, a, sm- a short campaign, these guys got enough in their knapsacks and on their beasts of burden to feed themselves. They're not going to show up like, like your relatives may at your house and just expect to be fed. They, they, they will provide for themselves, so we're getting a, a hint here that there's more going on. And their their military goal is spelled out at the end of verse 10. What they're saying they want to do is defend the covenant standards of justice by dealing with the Benjaminites of Gibeah in accordance with their disgraceful act in Israel. But is it all of Gibeah? Is it all of Benjamin that has done this? No, of course not. But, But the support for this declaration, for this resolution in this meeting is unanimous. Finally, the tribes of Israel are all united in a common military exercise. All the things we read before about the, um, the desert raiders and the Moabites coming in and certain tribes failing to respond, that's, that's past history. Now they're all ready. They're all gearing up for war. But tragically, instead of taking aim at the Canaanites who still need to be moved out of the, of the land as, as, as they've been commissioned by Yahweh to do, is their mandate to them is to do this. They've set their sights on one of their own cities. It's civil war. Before the Israelites launched the attack against Gabeah, though they send delegates throughout the entire land of Benjamin demanding an accounting of the crime that has been committed in the midst of Benjamin. They say, what evil, or ra'ah, what evil is this that has taken place among you? And further, they demand that the Benjamites hand over the evildoers, so that they can be executed in order that the wickedness they brought upon the land may be removed. The messengers demand the bene belayal, the sons of Belal from Gibeah, the culprits that were identified in the author's original account that we read. They don't ask for the leaders of Gibeah whom the Levite has accused in his report to the congregation, And, and we should see something in this, in this discrepancy. So what they've done, it's not that suddenly the heralds have been instructed, well, it's not the leaders, it's just these group of bad men. No, what's happened, I would propose to you, is that Israel is now painting all of Gabeah, and all of Benjamin with a very broad brush. The actions of this group of psychotic rapists has now been pinned on everybody in Benjamin. However, this is kind of a head scratcher here. The Benjamites refuse to turn over the men responsible for this horrible crime. Why would they harbor and protect rapist murderers from judgment? That that makes no sense, does it? In Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 35, verses 30 and 31, Yahweh explicitly instructs Israel, through Moses, as to what he expects, the requirements he has of them when a murder occurs. There shall be the execution of the murderer based on the evidence of two or more witnesses. Now we have two witnesses to what occurred here. We have the Levite. Although, you know, his testimony so far seems to be a bit tainted. And we have the host, the old man that put them up. There's two witnesses to what went on. Further, the Lord says there can be no, ramps, no ransom for the life of a murder. What that means is there's no substitution for the death penalty allowed. In other words, we can't say, well, you know what, it's barbaric to kill him. We'll just sentence him to prison for life without parole, and then later we'll change that and we'll give them parole and we'll send them out again. And, you know, but everyone will have forgotten about it by then. No, no substitution. This is what's gonna happen. Furthermore, and there's a reason behind this, the Lord explained this to Moses. It's not that the God of the Old Testament is just so severe. No, there's something that's going on here that we miss That just, it's just very intriguing. There's, there, the Lord explains there are far-ranging effects of murder when it goes unpunished that involve a spiritual element that is unseen by mortal man. And in that book of Numbers, chapter 35, then in verses 33 through 34, the Lord tells us what it is. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land that blood is shed in, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of... Of the people of Israel. The murder of a human being. A murder that goes unpunished. Is a grave offense. To the Lord our God. Because we are his image bearers. Violence against an image bearer of God. In effect is violence against God himself. Those who do such things. Have a hatred of God. The Lord God which is beyond our ability to know but hatred it is so by their refusal the Benjaminites are in covenant violation against God it's not just that they're against their brothers they are against Yahweh in this case they have chosen the sons of Belial over their brothers in Israel and not only that they have chosen the sons of Satan over the Lord God This seems inexplicable to us. But there's clues in the story that we've seen. And I'm going to remind you of them. Because otherwise this is just like shocking. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Why would they do that? Well, first, remember that the people of Gebeah refused hospitality to the Levite and his companions when they arrived in the city. They subjected them to the danger of sleeping in the open square. Now, if you live in a town where there's a marauding gang that goes about raping and murdering, you're probably aware of that. They usually don't operate under the radar. That's not their personality. They want to intimidate and harm as many people as they can. So the people of Gabea knew of these scoundrels, and yet they did not take these travelers into their homes to protect them. It took another sojourner to bring them in. And so based on the customs of the time and place that this story occurred, th- this was a form of passive abuse. It was like, yeah, we know what's going to happen to you. and you know, We just will turn a blind eye to it. And, and secondly, the Benjamites, remember, are aware of the calling to the assembly before the Lord at Mizpah. But they stay away. They do not respond to it. And now, they openly declare solidarity, unity, with the murdering rapists by refusing to extradite them. They choose the sons of Satan over the assembly of God. So in spirit and in action... Benjamin has turned against his brothers here and against God's covenant, effectively rejecting relationship with both. Israel's disintegration is now growing rapidly. This brings us to the last point, point number three. Sin lies at the center of all that is bad. Sin lies at the center of all that is bad. I know that's obvious, but I have a point to make here. That's why it's point number three, because there's a point. So bad, in biblical Hebrew, is this word ra'ah, which is the opposite of good. Now bear with me, because it sounds like I'm, I'm not trying to speak down to you. But it means more than what we might think. It refers to all that is not good, in human experience, all that is not good in the eyes of God. Now when the Lord created, we read in the creation accounts what? That he sees that it is good. So it is the opposite of what the Lord has done. It is something against God. And this includes what are to us seemingly natural events, which theologians call natural evil, to moral evil, which we've seen here, the crime against this concubine is moral evil. And these evils occur both in human beings and spiritual beings, thus the angelic rebellions that we read of and we know of. Sin, then, is the seed, the source, the essence of unhappiness, that which is not good. Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 48, 22, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Now, this word "peace" in Hebrew, shalom, has a deep, deep meaning. It means more than you know, peace, um, like you know, don't hurt me, sort of thing. Or you know, peace. This word shalom um, means completeness. It means soundness. It means safeness, health, prosperity, well-being. Basically, everything in life that is good. Everything in life that comes. From God is shalom. The wicked that the Lord speaks of here, rasha, can be translated the guilty. This implies divine judgment. Those that are moving against God and will be will be judged for their opposition to Him. There is no peace, nor there is any happiness for the wicked. That is the sinner, the sinner in his sins. Whatever carnal pleasure is brought by sin is temporary. It's fleeting. It's passing. And in its passing, it leaves emptiness, loneliness, and unhappiness. Sin and sorrow are bound together by the unbreakable chains of hell. But the Lord gives the true Christian the things of genuine happiness. Think of the blessings... That we have brothers and sisters in Christ. That only he, our Lord, can provide. All of our sins are forgiven. Forgiven and forgotten. Don't forget that. The forgotten. You are adopted into God's own very family. No matter how messed up our families are. We are in God's perfect family. We're not perfect yet. But brethren, we will be. God has promised us that. You are justified in the divine legal sense before God. When you stand before God, you are perfectly innocent. That is better than what can happen in a human court of law. In a human court of law, you can only be found not guilty. Which just means, you know what, we couldn't catch you this time. But we'll get you next time. You slipped through the cracks, buddy. No, you are innocent. Completely absolved. You did not do one thing. Thing wrong. Why? Because you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is amazing. This, when, I, when, I, when you think about things like that, this is not a religion that man could really make up, is it? Because it's too good to be true. Because we don't have to work for this. This is given to us freely. And oh, what we will not do for our Lord that bestows these upon us. We want to please him. We want to serve him. Who would not want to obey a God who blesses us so richly? <sighs> so you and I have been transformed from a child of Satan. From one of these sons of Bilal that committed this horrible crime in Gabeah. We were amongst them and we have been transformed into a child of God complete opposite we present rasha to god he gives us shalom we are made into a new creation by the holy spirit given the spirit of adoption into our heart we are now at peace with god is that not a wonderful thing is not, to, to, to know that peace we all who are true Christians have felt that and what a difference it is from when we were sinners trying to clean up after ourselves trying to modify our behavior trying to oh, I promise I'm not going to do that again and then God changes us in his mercy and in his, his grace and we are at peace with him and God is at peace with us Oh, what a marvelous, marvelous feeling that is. So dear Christian brother and sister, all of God's promises are yours. God is with you. God is for you. There was this Baptist preacher in the early 19th century in Virginia by the name of Cornelius Tyree who wrote this book, The Moral Power of a Pious Life in 1859. Now, I don't think that would be a bestseller today. Most people would not pick that up off the shelf. It doesn't sound like it's very interesting. It's not a quick read. But he says some marvelous things in it. Things that we often lose sight of. He says there's an inseparable connection between holiness and happiness. God is the most happy being in the universe because he is the most holy. Holy. And the happiness of his people is just in proportion as they resemble him in righteousness and true holiness. The great cause of sadness and depression in the followers of Christ is their small piety. This is the key statement right here that Tyree has. They follow Christ from afar. It's like we're witnessing the cross as a distant event. That we're on the edge of the murmuring crowd in the crucifixion. And we don't go any closer. Whereas our Savior calls us to the foot of the cross where his shed blood washes away all of our sins. So do not choose the edge of that murmuring crowd, friend. Where you think your sin, even one, can be hidden. The devil does not want you close to the cross, no. He whispers to you, this is close enough. Stay here and you can enjoy both your special, secret, sinful pleasure and righteousness. You're righteous enough as you are. You don't need anything more. Do not believe that. Our archenemy will use this one sin against you. He will hitch you to the train of his black misery and guilt and pull you to where you do not want to go. He's a liar and a murderer and has been so from the beginning. Therefore, stick fast to the Lord with full purpose of heart. Cultivate close fellowship with the Lord. Walk softly uprightly and daily with him who loves you he loves you beyond the depths of all human understanding oh that we could love one another like the Lord loves us what a happy people what a happy world we would be will be and it will happen imagine that will come to pass and we will have perfect love for one another and we will know the peace of God Like a wide rolling river in our life. And his pathways will be a shining light to guide you. Faith. Our Christian religion must not be one of hollowness and hypocrisy. Israel was in such a state. And the Lord sent this word to them through the prophet Amos. Amos 5, 21-24. The Lord God speaking. He says... like an ever-flowing stream. As poetic as that last verse is, it's not beautiful, it's beautiful poetry, but it's not intended to give us a sense of comfort. It's a warning of judgment. It's a warning today to all who call themselves Christians. Hypocritical religion is hated and despised by God. It does not bring the gently rolling river of God's peace. No, friends, it brings the flooding waters of God's judgment. That is what the Lord is speaking of at the end of that passage. He's speaking of the waters of judgment that will come upon those who he despises because of their hypocrisy in their offerings to him. Isaiah, though, gives us the other side of that. In Isaiah 26, verse 1 and 3, and here uh, in this passage starting in, back in chapter 25 of Isaiah he's speaking of the eschaton the, the, the end of time when all is made right by God and he, he says in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you there's the key for us focus on the Lord Jesus in everything set your mind on him Only the Lord can bring peace of mind, peace of spirit, peace of life. The state of mind is a result of trust in Christ. Lack of inner peace. Inability to remain mindful of the Lord is due to a lack of trust in him. It's not so much that we consciously distrust God as a God-hater might. Rather, it's that our trust is misplaced in, in ourselves or, or in others rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be aware of this. This is, this is something that every human, every Christian is going to struggle with. We, none of us are exempt from this. We are told again in Isaiah 26.4, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. We can trust him because he does not change. If he changed then we could worry. But the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. For which we can give thanks and say amen. Join me in prayer as we close here. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we, we marvel at the blessings that you give. We marvel at the wonderful plan of salvation that you have given us. We marvel, Father, that we have been chosen, for we know we're undeserving, yet we rejoice. It makes our hearts glad, Father. I ask that the Holy Spirit guide us, that, that we, we rejoice and respond to these wonderful blessings with love and obedience to you, Father, and to our Lord and Savior, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and to the Holy Spirit who fills us and guides us. Father, we give thanks for these things. Father, your word resonates so deeply with us. May we dwell in it. May we become familiar with it. May it be the source of life that we look to, that we may assist one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we may provide testimony to those of your elect who have not yet known salvation. Father, use us. We offer ourselves to you as you decree. Father, we ask for blessings upon the rest of this day on the fellowship that is going to occur and our preaching that is going to happen this evening. Father, we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.